this is Music Respawn. I'm Kate Remington, catching up with Jason Graves. And it's just, it's always so much fun to have a chance to talk with you. And we've got a great reason to talk now with your new score for The Devil and Me. It's the latest Dark Pictures anthology and the Dead Space remake. So, wow, great to talk again. All the D titles, The Devil and Me <laughs> and Dead Space. And they're 15 years apart from each other, but... um. You know, probably have some uh, some similar um, vibes going on. I would imagine. Yeah, I would think so. And honestly, I, I mean, of course they're connected because you wrote both of them. But also, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it kind of seems like the devil in me wouldn't have happened without Dead Space. And so, you know, maybe we could just start with how, since then, Dead Space has kind of like you know pushed your career forward. It's kind of crazy, isn't it? Because I still. Not in a unappreciative way, but I still sort of wonder what the big deal is that everyone makes about the music. And I completely appreciate it. I mean, a thousand percent. Um, but knowing how it was all put together and how it was all assembled with all these little bits and pieces of things and um, what an incredible, crazy ordeal it was and how just completely barbaric and like musically disgusting the score is i figured that um it would work right in the game but we're talking about dead space um 15 years ago you know it would work great in the game but um outside of that i wasn't really thinking too much about it i guess probably because it was the first horror score i'd ever done and before that i was doing like World War II games or like um, Arthurian kind of legend games or like kids games for Ubisoft, which had lots of melody and lots of chords and were very hummable. And obviously Dead Space was not. So it's been a blessing to have this resurgence of attention and enthusiasm for the score. And um, yeah, it jump-started everything for me it jump-started my my career it jump-started people recognizing my last name <laughs> and going oh graves <laughs> dead space and um yeah i don't know how many i don't know how many horror titles i've done since that first dead space that the devil in me is probably at least number 12 or 13 or something like that so yeah it definitely was a, a very specific niche score that um gave unexpected and very pleasant results, I think, for me personally. Yeah, and I, I really want to dig in and, and talk about it. I've been racking my brain to ask you things that you haven't been asked before, and hopefully I've, <laughs> I've managed that. But, <laughs> but let's let's start with the devil in me because that is such a really incredible experience. And I think of of the four dark pictures anthologies so far. This one is the creepiest. I mean, it's really got this like slow burn and the music like totally supports that. I thought they did a really good job picking, Supermassive, picking this, uh, it's sort of the season finale. The first four games are like the first season of the Dark Pictures anthology. And um, every game is obviously very different. And since it's a different story and different characters and a different time setting, Sometimes they're supernatural things, sometimes they're psychological things, and I think what really grounded the devil in me is it's it's just a dude. It's like a, this really evil guy with this place that he built with all these trick walls and trap doors and really evil sort of uh, death puzzles and things, but it's very grounded in that sense. And I I like that every one of these titles has such a different vibe and... Like you mentioned, in this game, 
the characters do run occasionally, but most of the time it's about planning and strategy. And if there's someone's life on the line, it's usually because there's some sort of a time-based event happening where someone is caught somewhere and something bad's going to happen if someone else doesn't do something in time. It's not run away from the killer as fast as you can. It's not until dawn, right, where she runs into the bed and it's like, or the killer's there and the music starts up and it's like, do you run or do you hide? And you're trying to figure out and it's all panicky and frenetic. This is very methodical and well-paced. And even when the killer's chasing the characters in the game, he's just walking, which is crazy. But I love that slow but very constant idea, which I, I tried really hard, and it was very hard to do, to put it into the music, because as soon as I started doing things that were too slow or too simple in my head, I'd think, this is boring, I can't do the same thing, it's too repetitive, but then I'd walk away and come back and try to get some perspective on it. Thank you. 
It's hard to do simple, right? It's hard to do slow, laborious, simple, but keep it creatively interesting and keep the kind of the momentum moving forward while still being slow and simple. <laughs> At least it is for me. Well, it's it works really well because you've mm. got that momentum with the kind of the mechanical, it's almost like a metronome in a lot of the cues. And I'm wondering if you set that tempo with Dumet's, you know, his walking speed at all. Um, not, not specifically, like not watching him walk, but definitely that was the idea, is most of the cues have that kind of walking, slow walking pace. And I had kind of a dual a dual idea with the, the machine clicking, ticking sounds in the score because I wanted to convey the sense of time passing for all the reasons that we have talked about so far, the slow pace of the game. But also, there's a lot of mannequins, like a lot of mannequins in this game, and some of them are hooked up to animatronics, so they move and shift you know, in a very repetitive sort of way, but there's lots of clicking and ticking and machine sounds when they're moving. So I was like... I want to use something with ticking for the mannequins, like clickety, tickety, big watches or something. But wait a minute. I also want to do things with time and time passing so I could kind of do two things at once and put them both together. And that was the like the first idea for the score. To You know, I'm always looking for something different. Um, what can I do that I haven't done before that works for the game? And that was the first sort of idea. Yeah, it's it's really cool. And I'm wondering how you got those sounds. I mean, do you have a library of like mechanical raspy tickety sounds or did you like bang on things? <laughs> I started trying to record some stuff. Like I got out my bike and I got out some like uh, old ratchety sort of percussion sounds, but nothing was nothing was it didn't sound the way I wanted, even if I tried to, you know, treat it and like run it through some guitar pedals or something to make it interesting. So I ended up um, purchasing some like sound effects, like a sound effects library, like you would get to put sound effects under a game or under a film. So it's not really for composers, um, but it was just this you know, way more than I ever needed. But I was able to source like very specific sounds and then kind of build them into the rhythm the way I wanted them. I put them on this drum pad that no one can see except us, but I've got this little box that has 16 <laughs> pads on it. So I could I could tap each pad and it was a different, like chink, whatever sort of a sound. And that way I could build different rhythms together with the different sounds and then run those through the guitar pedals and make them sound interesting and horrific. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's super is. There's nothing like this sense of you're not going to have enough time to make yourself safe. That's like reinforced with this ticking. It's like really terrifying. So well done. Check that box off. <laughs> and isn't it, isn't it funny how simple that is just like the heartbeat. Um, I used uh, my drum machine, just like a doom, like an 808 kick drum sound, but I made it really short and pitched it down. So it was like a thump, thump like a heartbeat sort of a thing. And it's so simple, but it's something about tying into that physiological aspect of our bodies um, with the heart beating and the clocks ticking and it makes you think about your breathing and all these interesting sort of um, mental tricks that are so simple, but just seem to work so incredibly well for horror. Yeah, absolutely. And there are times when you, you have to, you, you choose to hide 
and you have to like tap in time with the heartbeats that you see on the screen and so yeah it all kind of blends together and we meet the 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 um, serial killer for the first time in Chicago in 1893 there's this that's how the game starts with this couple on their honeymoon checking into what seems like a really nice hotel for the, the Chicago exhibition <laughs> <laughs> Lots of arrivals, no departures. <laughs> uh, um, exactly. <laughs> and and the the way that you set the set the scene for that with that uh, honeymoon track, it's called on the soundtrack, is really wonderful because it gives you no clue at all about the horror that's you know about to befall these poor people. So that that must have been a nice kind of lyrical way to start the soundtrack. It was, and actually, it was one of the last things that I wrote because um, in in typical sort of, I think, probably any kind of production fashion, the very beginning and the very end of the game is usually the last things that come online because it's what everyone's trying to tweak and get done just the right way. And um, there were a couple of other scenes uh, with character interactions, um, you know, emotional sort of touchstones between different characters and things that happen, depending on your choices, of course, that also needed a similar sort of playful, possibly, you know, sensitive, definitely not scary kind of treatment, which is why that's such a, it's such a long track, but it, it plays through two or three sort of different sections of music so that Supermassive could grab each section and sort of cut them up and throw them underneath whichever scene they were trying to underscore.
what I really loved was being able to take the um, the bum bum dum 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 the creepy four note ascending very much like a clock ticking thing that plays throughout the whole score. I was able to take that instead of having it on this crazy altered minor chord. It was just very pleasant, like major triads and and open minor triads, and that was that's where I just. Get tickled because it's again it's so simple but um i love being able to do stuff like that like you can hear it in the game at the very beginning and it's very pleasant and beautiful but then you hear it again at the at the beginning of the game 10 minutes later and it's definitely not but that's because everything has changed and kind of turned the whole situation's turned on its head yeah fun little musical tricks to well, play you know you, you just mentioned how hard it is to do something simple but creating a theme like that is perfect because it is super flexible and then you can kind of shift it and and change it around and make it do what you want it to do and give it a different character. It was really fun. It's almost like the more simple it is, the more malleable it is. But of course, like you said, it's definitely not not easy coming up with something simple. I always want to do something. Your brain wants to do something more fancy and and involved but when it's really stripped down and simple like that you can do lots of fun things with it i i really enjoyed putting things in i don't remember what time signatures i think there's like some seven or some five or some 11 some off kilter time signatures like maybe in the chase queue and um the bum 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 is is still quarter notes but it comes in at like different kind of times different from the downbeat and that was really fun kind of shifting things around like that um to play against expectation and hopefully in the game or when they listen to the soundtrack um folks can can recognize it and it's sort of like shoved in to this odd time signature in a very uncomfortable way i i hope because that's what I was trying to <laughs> make people feel just uncomfortable well it worked it, it super super worked
thing about being chased is there are so many obstacles that the players, the, the characters have to get around in this maze of rune, rooms and the traps and the mechanical stuff and the dead ends and things like that. And so to keep things kind of off balance, I think, works really, really well. And I like it being, it's not off balance. Like we can go back to the original Dead Space score. Like that action music is very off balance, like off balance all the time. It'll, I mean, I don't remember, but I would do something like, Seven eight seven eight seven eight, and then a bar of three four. So you get a shift, and then seven eight seven eight seven eight, and then a bar of five four. So you get another shift, but it's not the same shift as before. Then seven eight seven eight seven eight, and then like a bar of five eight. It was always changing. There was never a dependable downbeat, and that was because of what the gameplay was in Dead Space, just completely frenetic and crazy. And the the odd meters in this game are very predictable because it's you still have that plodding like constant killer walking towards you, even if he's really close. So the, the the beats shift, but they always shift in a predictable way, which was also very satisfying. I, I'm a drummer, you know, I, I can't help it. I'm, I'm hearing these beats and the orchestra basically being my, uh, my giant drum set um, in my head all the time. So it's great to be able to kind of groove with stuff like that, even if it's... Um, you know, very dark and very scary. I'm I'm enjoying it because it's it's got my head bobbing a little bit in a in a in a fun way. <laughs> you gotta have fun with it somehow. <laughs> That's that just gives me this great image. I because <laughs> I'm wondering, you know, how you're feeling emotionally writing this stuff. Um, but if it's if it's making you tap your toes, uh, that's that's probably a good thing. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I'm always trying different instruments and things um as you mentioned uh, the the original dead space score 15 years ago i sampled i recorded an orchestra in little tiny pieces all the violins doing different effects all the violas doing different effects and that really got me started on like sampling an orchestra and in the last maybe that was 15 years ago so probably about halfway about the last 7 years i've kind of transitioned to recording a lot of stuff myself so um all the strings that you hear in the devil in me not the tonal strings all the effect scary strings that's me performing on my strings um you know five or six violin parts five or six viola parts five or six cello parts five or six bass parts just kind of doing the same thing and, and multi-tracking it up um which is even more flexible because then i can really sculpt the sounds or the crazy effects and things specifically to whatever kind of motion or um like idea that i'm trying to get over let's say a 10 second long string effect that builds and builds and builds and builds and then kind of disappears into the middle of nothing. It takes a little longer, but it's a lot more fun to stand up and walk around the studio and pick up instruments and, and abuse them. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm definitely not a string player. Um, but I can make some really ugly sounds, and it's fun. It's, it's like... I'm not looking at, you know, a beautiful theme and, and harmony with, with like major seven chords and suspensions and stuff. So I get to find another way to amuse myself. And 
not break some strings in the process, hopefully. <laughs> I love this story about uh, the recording sessions for Dead Space with the with the string players, and they didn't want to damage their really expensive bows, so you gave them all sticks, <laughs> and you had to break up them, you know, dueling with the sticks and stuff. And it's <laughs> I just thought it would be a good idea. And I just went to the hardware store and bought some wooden dowels that were about the same size as a, as a violin bow or a cello bow would be and cut them to size for each instrument and had them on the stands. And man, in between every single take, they were picking it up and tapping their music stands and tapping their chairs and tapping their next uh, chair partner like on the shoulder or, I mean, it was, I finally just had to say, everyone put the dowels under your chair. This is the equivalent of a of a middle school band director looking at the percussionist and going, "Sit on your hands, <laughs> like stop, just stop playing." Because drummers are always fiddling because they've got sticks and drums and things, and you have to go, "Just sit on your hands, stop touching anything." And that's basically what I had to have the orchestra do because they were just every every single cue would finish and they'd pick one, they'd pick the dowels up again, and I'd say, "We're not doing that until the end of the session." Oh. And they had so much fun with it.
the whole session, honestly, it was a little stressful because of my responsibility, but conducting the musicians and the interacting with them was one of the most fun sessions I've ever had, uh, multiple sessions, because they were just giddy. They had all these choices. They could decide what strings they wanted to play and how loud they were going to play, and they're competing with each other. And so many, um, first like hour, we'd do a crazy sound, and I'd cut everybody off, and I'd have my hands up in the air, and about a second would go by, and someone would start laughing. And then the, the whole orchestra would just break up and giggling and like talking. And I'm sitting there looking at everyone with my hands up. It's like, do you see my hands up? We need, you know, three seconds of, of, of silence so that and, and then then everyone would just look very uncomfortable with like their eyes open like this. And I'd put my hands down and then everybody would just laugh <laughs> out loud because they were having so much fun, which, again, kind of like me in the studio with my strings. It's so much fun to do this really, really terrible sounding music. <laughs> <laughs> well, especially, you know, with those musicians in London at Abbey Road who, you know, play a lot of Beethoven and Mahler and Stravinsky and all of those yeah. really demanding pieces, but you have to do it right and you can't play around. <laughs> so. Yeah. Something that I'd never really thought of um, until I recorded... Um, the Order 1886 out at Abbey Road. We didn't have any violins. I had um, 28 or 32, a lot of violas, like 28 violas and 18 cellos and just very, very large strings. And so the concertmaster of the string section is normally the principal violinist, the first chair violinist. Well, this in this case, it's the first chair violist. And he had all these concerns in a good way about kind of wrangling the section together because he said that um, they usually don't play this many violas and he wanted to make sure to get a homogenous, solid kind of sound. And I was like, oh, no, 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 no. I want, like, I want every violist to basically be first chair. Like, I want everyone to sit up and try to stand out because when you're in a section with strings or trumpets or trombones, your job is to blend Right. Even if you you're playing Bach or Stravinsky or whatever, you're supposed to sound like a homogenous section. And the section leader is the one that kind of leads. So even if you have all these specific notes in this Bach chorale piece that you need to play, not only do you have to do those exactly the right way, but you also have to follow the section leader and play the same way the section leader is playing. So no Bach chorale on any of this music. Right. They're getting to play kind of anything they want and no one has to follow a section leader. They're all their own section leaders, which is the other reason that they were just having so much fun. You know, the poor, like, last last string in the back, um, uh, the last couple of chairs, they never get to just, like, oh, I think I'm going to play really loud and really high on this, which I think is why there was so much competition, too. Everyone was trying to, like, outdo yeah. each other. <laughs> like, grade school again. <laughs> Well, how did you like salvage those sessions when when they were laughing? I mean, I'm just thinking about, you know, if I've been called on the carpet by a teacher and told specifically not to laugh, and then it's impossible not to laugh. So <laughs> what did you do? They they did a good job holding it in until and I would I would sit there and count like to seven basically. Um so we had good a good seven seconds of of reverb, you know, room tail and everything. And then they would just really let it rip and laugh and kind of, you know, get out their giggles in between takes. Because some of these cues, they're not music. It's just like 30 seconds of the violins going 
different. And then I cut them off, and we're still going. And then they go the same thing really, really quiet for another 30 seconds. Then it's the time for the second violins to do the same thing. Then the violas, then the cellos, then the basses. Some of these cues will be 12 or 15 minutes of all these textures and things. And everyone has to be really, really, really quiet because if someone moves and their chair squeaks, we have to stop and pick back up again. Or if their, you know, their phone goes off or, or whatever. So they're really like, they're focused and they're staying really, 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 really quiet. And then they just explode in between <laughs> takes. <laughs> well, the inspiration for all of this, all these incredible wild sounds that you got was the music by Penderecki and Ligeti. And I'm really curious about how you sort of went in there and, I don't know, reverse engineered their scores, their orchestral scores, like the Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima. I mean, what did you like pull from those scores that you thought would be perfect for Dead Space? Well, the the sounds, if you listen to Threnody, I mean, you, you, I think a video, a 25-year-old um, video game player would say, oh, that sounds like Dead Space. Well, no, Dead Space sounds like Penderecki or, or Ligeti or, or whomever. It's just... Um, like slightly more organized and a lot more angular and and rhythmic and angry. Um, the the long textures, like the the things that you hear, like in Threnody, Penderecki does a lot of very like slow gestures. So the strings are playing their highest note um, as quiet as they can for like 20 seconds, and then they slowly gliss down over a 15 second period while some other things are going on. That was fairly straightforward. Penderecki's scores are notated with pictures and things. So if you put that in front of a, a normal musician, um, they'd be like, I don't know what you want me to do with this. It, I mean, it just shows a picture of like four lines sticking up with a curve over the top of them and like a circle. And then, and then, and then a square, a big square on the music staff. And it's not even f a five-line music staff with a treble clef. It's just like two lines, I mean, like crazy abstract kinds of music. Um, so the first thing I needed to do was go from that crazy looking stuff to real looking music because what what I couldn't do was sit there and start every cue with a five minute explanation about what everybody was going to do. That's what it would have taken if it was all written out that way. But um, Paul Taylor, who did all of the music prep for all of the Dead Space sessions, um, I completely relied on him. I would write a, you know, I would say, play highest note as quietly as possible and I would try to sort of notate it and then he would boil it down to an even more simple explanation and it was all to you know to a click and we would know it's eight bars and then we're going to cut off and then two bars later someone else comes in so it looks like music and it doesn't really sound like music but it it it's you know phrased the way music would be phrased so that was all the most straightforward the hardest thing really was trying to figure out how to build something other than just these long textures because we've got to have momentum and, and energy. And um, that was where I did the strings and the brass, the short notes, um, just with lots of the strings just played X's. I, I just literally gave them X's and they were playing eighth notes and the X would start like on the low G-ish area on the violin and kind of work up in sort of like thirds across the entire range of the instrument. And I said, just play around there. And if you're playing the same note as someone else, please don't. 
like switch it up and don't play in tune. You know, I just need you to play in time. So they would do this trunk, 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 like eight or 10 times and then go up to the next note and then go up to the next note. And we'd sit there and do that for like five minutes, um, three different dynamics and all that stuff. But what that enabled me to do was cut it up and I can play it on my keyboard and it, it's very velocity sensitive and it's very well it sounds like um it doesn't sound like i'm playing you know a, a normal string sound and playing three notes at the same time it's literally 15 or 18 players all playing a slightly different note from each other so it's really crunchy and that was the that was the secret to unlocking kind of the action terror stuff
all the strings, uh, they're all from basically one patch that I made. I just called them X chugs or something like that. So anything that you hear, Dead Space 1 or 2, and most of Dead Space 3, is that one string sound that I recorded for the whole string section. Um, but it was just so, it's like its own instrument. And I did the same thing with the brass and the woodwinds, but it was actual chords. I, I notated them because there were less players. You can't take four trombones and go, play any note, because, I mean, sometimes you'd get a major chord on accident. I specified notes for woodwinds and brass. The strings, because of the number of players, was where it was really like the um, the eureka moment. And I, I hoped it would work. And I got home, and that's the first thing I cut up and put together just really fast, and I was playing it, and I was like, oh, my gosh, this sounds amazing. Sounds like, you know, like Psycho um, with the... He was just like a, a kind of a gliss up to a specific note, but these were just so crunchy and real sounding. Uh, yeah, that was sort of the the unlocking of the entire score, I think. That's amazing. I mean, how far along was the game when you went in to record the orchestra? I mean, were there cutscenes where you had planned out the music, you know, like already in place, or was this more of a, I don't know, a hunting and gathering for sound sort of idea? Definitely the latter, because um, I was on the game for about two and a half years, and um, I started like right when they started working on the game. After I had two recording sessions, about I think it was about a year apart on each each session. So the first session, the game was just getting sort of put together in a playable kind of format, and I remember we had the recording session in Seattle. And I flew down to San Francisco after the session just to visit EA, and they had a backup of the recording session there, and they just had grabbed some of those long textures and things that I had recorded and literally just threw them into the game almost haphazardly and just kind of had them triggered randomly. And, I mean, I'd done like five hours of material. I didn't recognize, oh, yeah, that's cluster five from string session one. I didn't, I couldn't have told you. Um if it was mine or not, but I didn't recognize it, but it sounded awesome because it was this like creepy corridor, of course, with like a catwalk going across and there was all this mist and the, you were just kind of sitting there. You could see Isaac and then this necromorph started coming towards you. And as the necromorph was kind of galumphing towards you slowly, the music was building and building and building. And it was kind of like, okay, wow, talk about instant gratification. So I kind of looked around. I'm like, so this is working for everybody, right? And they're like, oh, yeah. <laughs> we were all really, really excited. Yeah, I'll bet. And the thing that has really struck me playing through the remake is how much of a character the Ishimura is. I mean, besides Isaac and the crew, the ship itself, because it's yeah. telling Isaac what what it needs or what's broken. And so that must have been kind of an interesting challenge too to kind of work with that additional like character it was cool because the sound department um audio team for sound effects and things really made it feel like a lived-in space you know there's always obviously audio playing but the ambient sound of the ship was sort of the first layer that they put down and there's also always music playing, but a lot of times it actually sounds more like the ambient sound of the ship because they're kind of built and they were created to to go hand in hand. The music is the the four layers that we've talked about before, but that bottom layer, the quietest layer, is always playing. And a lot of times it's um, 
you know, it's me instructing the string players to just pick a note and play really quietly. And they'll hold that chord for 15 or 20 seconds, and then we'll do another one, and we'll do another one. And those get strung together in that bottom layer. But it, it sounds like room tone when you mix it in with the sound effects. But if you, if you took it out, I think there would be a lot less tension. It's, it's working subliminally um, on the players. And that was just another really great, Great call by Don Vecca, the original audio director from from the first Dead Space. Because I was saying, well, when are you going to trigger the music? He's like, oh, no, no. Music's playing all the time. And I'm like, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, all the time. But, you know, the fear emitter, if, when you get closer to an emitter in the game, that'll turn up the, the layers of the game. And he kind of brainstormed that whole thing. It just left it to me to figure out how the music was going to work with his incredibly genius idea which took some time, but was worth it, I think. Well, it, it's super interesting to know that because I didn't realize that the music was playing all the time either just now through the through the play. You know, the it just because there's, there's sound there, but it's not always music. So it must have been fun to take the string sounds that you got and then process them so that they sounded like, you know, ship sounds or, you know, other creepy stuff. The biggest challenge, honestly... Um... I recorded a lot of really quiet string sounds. And strings, more than any other instrument, um, can play really, really quietly. Even if you have 18 people, if they're playing their quietest, it's very, very quiet. And I needed to boost, I needed to gain stage, you know, to turn up that sound. And if I did it with just one, it was okay. But then I started playing some multiple notes, not chords, but I'd try to play like four or five of those string sounds at once. And there was this noise buildup of just room tone, just kind of in the background. And I thought, oh no, what have I done? <laughs> I shouldn't have done, you know, I had to noise reduce everything, which is not, was not as easy now. <laughs> um, it's really easy to noise reduce stuff now. You just get Isotope or one of the other like five different things. There were really only two or three options back then, and they were all expensive. And this was me producing everything myself. So I, I had already cut up all the samples, but I had to go back in and do noise reduction on every single one of them. Enough so that it got rid of the noise, not so much so that it didn't, you know, make everything sound like it was underwater. But other than that, other than the noise reduction, there isn't any other processing a little bit of reverb on the orchestra. It's just, um, that's just the way they sound playing those techniques. It's just super creepy. But when you get that sort of stagnant, like just strings playing without vibrato and everyone's bowing imperceptibly and it's just this kind of just ambient like tone, after about 10 seconds, your brain sort of ignores it because it's not changing or anything, right? And it just kind of turns into part of the background naturally. Yeah, well, it's like, when you go into Grand Central Station, there's this <laughs> huge space, and it just kind of opens up, and there's this constant sort of thrumming kind of sound, and that's kind of what I imagine if you were actually on the Ishimura, that's what it would be like to just be in such a huge structure like that. Exactly. And you've got the ship's engines and all the other things that are going on, and I just love going from room to room in the game because the all the room tones change, different pitches and frequencies, you know, things are in different keys, and it's just really, really well done sound design. Yeah, it's it's absolutely brilliant. The game is, it holds up so well, 
And it just, I won't say it brought back happy memories, but it, it did bring back <laughs> memories. I mean, just, I, Some sort of memories. Well, yeah, because I, I, I was playing it with my son when he was in high school. So there's that happy memory. But, but And then if I wasn't in the room and he'd be using his headphones, I'd hear him go, because <gasps> a necromorph had just, you know, popped out. <laughs> totally, but yeah. I, uh, but tell me about the the stingers that you used for for them. I mean, because you've got you had like a few different ones, right? For their, depending on where they would appear or or what else was popping out. I did so many stingers, um, and, and just I was just thinking about when I was building the library of sounds. Um, it was something ended up being something like um, seventeen or eighteen hundred different sounds like some of those were really short like all those short strings but you know that would be like 280 individual string sounds that all needed to be edited noise reduced named properly dropped into the keyboard so I could play it musically and um, it was just a lot a lot a lot of work and then that's not including writing the writing the music I think probably 70% of my time was spent um prepping and and recording and producing the sounds so that I could actually get to the last 30% of the work, which was actually writing the music. But that's when, when everything's in place and ready to go, that's when doing things like stingers are really fun because I can pull out all these crazy, just like, kinds of orchestra things and throw them together in ways that would be you know a little challenging to do with um with a live orchestra especially all that stuff happening at the same time i I probably did um 30 or 40 different stingers but they were all different um like lengths and different kinds of intensities what i loved about it is um the stingers were fired off randomly sort of by category so maybe you went around a corner and saw something on the ground but it, it was like oh very ominous well there'd be an ominous stinger that would fire but if you did the same thing again a different ominous stinger would fire and i think that makes a big difference when you're in combat because it would always do a kickstart with a stinger and then the combat music would sort of slide in everything was always changing because everything was sort of randomly based on gameplay. So you could get the same kind of jump scare from a necromorph, and it would feel different because the music would be like a completely different but still hopefully terrifying (laughs) jump scare stinger. (laughs) Did you ever, was there ever a point, like, I don't know, midway through or even a little bit, you know, past the midpoint, where you started to feel a little bit like Isaac, like this isn't really what I expected. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, what ended up happening probably about halfway through, I think once I had my second recording session, yeah, so it was about halfway through, um, I started just, nothing seemed scary anymore. Um, Like I had developed such an immunity to cacophony and dissonance and crazy rhythm that I was convinced that I was going to fail because it just it's just not that scary. It's so predictable. This is my head. You know, this is me inside my head thinking about these things. Nothing but glowing feedback from, from EA. But as a result, and I think this is how any kind of artistic mindset works, 
I kept trying new things and I kept trying to kind of push the boundaries even more. It needs to be scarier, even bigger, even this, even more of that. And it worked because it just got more and more intense as, as I was writing more and more cues. Um, I couldn't tell you what I wrote at the beginning and what I wrote at the end, but um, hopefully the, the soundtrack, like from one cue to another, even though they're incredibly dissonant and there's no real melody or harmony or discernible rhythm, um, they're very unique, I hope, because I kept trying to do something different. Like, I don't want to do that rhythm before and use that sound. I need to use something new that's even scarier. (laughs) (laughs) Can't help it. I think that's just the way our brains work. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, I think what makes the the aleatoric stuff and the chaotic stuff so powerful is that in the midst of all of that, there are passages where the orchestra is playing together and kind of a melody. <laughs> and yeah, a little yeah, bit. Yeah, a little bit. So so they, they, they kind of reinforce each other, I think. You get this little moment where you're just like, oh, this sounds almost normal. And then you're back to the aleatoric stuff. Yeah, I think the yin and the yang works works really really well and that was a big part of my my mental gymnastics thinking about Dead Space 2 uh, because the first one was such a big hit um and EA just automatically brought me back on which was amazing but I was like great well what kind of advice do you have they're like just keep doing whatever you want it sounds really good and I was like oh my gosh um Again, it's going to have to be bigger. It's going to have to be scarier because now I'm, you know, none of that sounds scary to me anymore. But I realized, like you mentioned, having the ref- the refresh, the palate cleanse of some tonality, um, I figured I could make the orchestra, quote unquote, scarier and bigger in Dead Space 2 by contrasting it with the string quartet. Because then the string quartet's very close mic'd and and quiet, and it does. I do do some creepy sounds with the string quartet, but a lot of it's mostly minor triads. But a lot of it's like triads and music, quote unquote, as we would normally consider it. And that way, when there's unisons and some nice harmony and things on the string quartet, I can bring the orchestra back, and it just rips your head off because you've kind of let your guard down musically listening to the quartet. It, like, lulls you into a false sense of security. And it does that in the game as well, as, you know, as well as listening to, um, to the soundtrack. But, um, yeah, I think it's really important to have chocolate and vanilla because they, they, they each complement each other, and um, you can't really have one work as well as it can without the other one.
Yeah, I mean, contrast is, you know, it's kind of an essential part of any music, but this is like a really obvious um, yin and yang example, which just works incredibly well. And I think it's really amazing that when EA re-released this, they didn't even touch your music. I mean, that says a lot about how much they respected it and what an essential part of the game the, the original music was. But if you could go back and tweak anything, I mean, would you have? Would you have done that? I think if if I was given the chance, I would I would um, prefer to look forward and think about doing new material rather than going back and tweaking old material. Um, but a, half of that's logistical because I was on a different computer with different software and different everything, and I still have the sounds um, somewhere on a backup drive. But um, yeah, it would be interesting to approach it with fresh ears and eyes, and you know, try something, um, try something different. Yeah, uh, but it it's the greatest compliment in the world that so much of the audio, as far as I know. A lot of the audio in the game survived. Um, I know Gunner came back. He voiced Isaac in Dead Space 2 and 3. They brought him back to do the voice for Dead Space. Okay, that's super cool. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of respect being paid to the franchise and, and sort of what set it on its path and what made it so notable. I mean, yes, the gameplay, yes, the graphics, um, but the audio not even talking about the music, just the audio in general and the sound design were just so brilliantly done that uh, it made sense for them to kind of start from there and say, okay, what can we do to improve this as opposed to what can we do to completely replace this and make it better by by swapping it out with something else? I think that was really smart. Well, because you're kind of, you'd be messing with people's memories too if if they had made mm -hmm. like really radical changes to the music. It just wouldn't be the same. So that was a bold, a good choice on their part, I think. <laughs> good job, <Yeah>. EA. <laughs> uh, you know, 15 years, it's like a lifetime with, you know, technical stuff and things that you can do now that you couldn't do then. And so I'm wondering if if there are any things, you know, if you had to do it over again, are there, are there tools now that you could use to make things, might have made things easier? I'm sure there are. I think the funny thing is the... Um the instruments themselves that I used that I built inside the computer didn't take up a whole lot of space. They weren't um, as processor intensive as, say, a professionally released, you know, full orchestra sample set um, that I've got two other computers in the other room that just run orchestra samples. I was doing most of this off of one machine because I just didn't have... I mean, even if it's eighteen or nineteen hundred samples, I think a, a legit full orchestra library is more like twenty, thirty, forty thousand samples because they just have so many more of everything: more samples, more dynamics, more instruments. Yeah, it would it would definitely be nice to do it in this room in in the new studio that's like sound treated and everything. I, I know my one regret from the first Dead Space is I feel like it's got too much reverb on it because. I was so convinced that no one would think that that was a real orchestra playing because it's just me, you know, playing my samples that I recorded, conducted, and cut up um, myself that I could easily see, like, the man behind the curtain pulling the strings. I'm like, this doesn't sound like a real orchestra. And I'm just shocked when so many people are assuming it's a live orchestra. Um, 
the 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 musical cues are live orchestra, but all the action stuff, all the scary stuff, is just me banging away in the computer, triggering all these little little tiny samples to um to make music. I think it could have had less reverb. <laughs> But maybe that's one of the reasons that everyone thought it was live, is there was just enough reverb. Who knows? Yeah. Well, I mean, the reverb kind of makes sense in the gigantic spaces of the Ishimura, too, Mm -hmm. because, you know, you think about where the where the where the pub band would be in dead space and you know, just tucked into it <laughs> exactly yes thank you nice callback yeah. i mean um to be to put it into to perspective i was working out of my house when i did dead space and i was i was making that music in a spare bedroom like with um next to like a coat rack with the the, the family's coats and all their shoes were stored in there and um it was, you know, I mean, no, like no soundproofing, just some little tiny Mackie speakers and some headphones. And I was, I was honestly surprised. I listened to a couple of tracks like a week ago and I probably hadn't listened to them in easily 10 or 12 years. And they sounded a lot better than I thought, <laughs> <laughs> which is a good thing. <laughs> yeah. It's always nice to be surprised that way. And like, you know, not... <laughs> Not embarrassed, or you know, just shove that under the rug and <laughs> hope nobody yeah. notices. Yeah, it's like wow, that's that's not as bad as I thought it was going to be. Good job, you, fifteen years ago.
are there things you you mentioned a, a few of the things the techniques with you know walking around your studio and banging on instruments and and you know scraping the violins that you used for the devil in me but i'm wondering if coming forward since dead space if there are other you know composing techniques that you've used that you've been able to use you know since then i think what i've probably done more than anything in the last 15 years is um just done more with with live live performances period um mostly of myself i can i can see like at least 10 or 12 microphones just around me right now um because i just really appreciate live performances um but also because of technology now um having someone like Kristen Nagus who records all of her woodwinds at home in in her room and she's got a treated room and uh some good microphones and preamps and things as well as um Tom Straley who uh played all my guitars for the last couple of games um the last couple of years he's done guitar stuff for me also records himself at home it's like we've we've sort of taken the expense and the scheduling nightmare of having to go to a proper studio just to record a guitar or just to record a flute or for me just to play some some percussion or some silly string sounds we've taken the big studios out of the equation and we're able to do it a, a lot cheaper and all, almost more importantly a lot more readily available um with the internet because Kristen, I'll email her something, and then that afternoon she sends me a link, and I just download the WAV files from Google or from Dropbox or something. We definitely couldn't do that um, as easily 15 years ago. And I love that because I feel like even though Tom's in L.A. and Kristen's in Florida and I'm here in North Carolina and I've got a cello player in Berlin, um, we're connected by that technology. And we're able to play like we're in our own little pub band, <laughs> even though we're literally all over the world. And it's um, it's so much better not having to schedule the studio and go get everything set up and do this and do that. I love to do that for a bigger ensemble, but for soloists and things, it's just amazing to be able to do it out of our out of our homes i love oh, it yeah and speaking of things coming out of your home um <laughs> i feel like we've barely <laughs> scratched the surface of all there is to know about your music for dead space but you have put together some incredible youtube videos and you really oh. <laughs> really really go into such depth i mean you really like get down to the granular level and so um let, let people know what your youtube channel is so they can check those out i've um I think it's just Jason Graves Music. I think that's the name of the channel. But if you go to jasongraves.com, which is my website, there is the link for YouTube is there as well as Instagram and and Twitter and all that. Um, I've always I was I was an education major in college before I switched to composition for my first year, first semester, because I love the idea of teaching and I just if there's anything that I could do to maybe save someone like the tiniest bit of pain that I've already experienced, you know, creatively, financially, um, uh, musically. <laughs> um, I just like to, I like helping and I love the idea of being able to share information. I think one of the first GDCs I went to, 
I was real excited to go to this one talk because there was like a panel of composers um, on stage talking about different things, and I was really looking forward to learning something new. I love learning. That's what it, basically what it comes down to. So I assume some other people out there love learning as well. And um, I was I was kind of I was kind of put off because. There was no real technical, like nothing was really, it was all surface level. I think it's GDC has come a long way and talks aren't like this anymore. But 15, 20 years ago, there was a lot of surface level talk, not a lot of details. Um, I couldn't really like get, like, even like, hey, what kind of speakers are you using? No one really wanted to talk because I think they felt like it was too competitive and somehow they, they would lose their edge. And I've never, I've never felt that way. I feel like it literally is about it's about the carpenter, not about the carpenter's tools. Um, it's not the paintbrush you use or the speakers you have or anything like that. So I think my knee-jerk reaction to that original experience that has changed now substantially for the better is to overshare. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, I, I, nothing makes me happier than when I learn something new. And I'm in a great mood today because I was doing some fun things with Harmony and I was like, wow, I didn't realize you could do that. That's so cool. And if there's other people like that out there, then my YouTube channel is probably a good place for you to go because I do get, I mean, down to the plugin that I use and the way the Harmony works and what I was thinking when I picked that instrument and how it was EQ'd and what the balance is, all that super technical, really nerdy music stuff, um, which I love to talk about anyway, but never have time at places like GDC. Well, YouTube, I have all the time in the world. <laughs> so there's hours and hours and hours and hours. I'm, there's actually probably about five, um, I don't know how many hours of dead space. I did a bunch of stuff on dead space last year uh, before I knew that they were going to have a, a, a remake come out. But yeah, all kinds of details for dead space. Um, my biggest problem was just not talking so much because I didn't want to post like 50 minute videos all the time. So hopefully they're a little more bite sized now, you know, 10, 12, maybe 15 minutes at the most. Yeah, you can just um, drop in, learn something amazing and then go to something else. <laughs> I, I hope so. And my, my only guilt about it is I wish I had time to do it more, but it's so involved, you know, producing those videos and getting everything done the correct way. And when there's deadlines looming, I have to make a choice. And unfortunately, YouTube is always passed over. <laughs> but what can you do? Well, yeah. And, and circling back to, you know, the devil in me, just to bring things kind of full circle. Is there anything that I didn't get a chance to, to talk with you about that? Because it's it's such an interesting score, and it's I just I just really enjoyed it. So if there's anything else you wanted to add about that, well, one thing that was really fun that I don't know if anyone's going to pick up on or not, but we we sort of Barney Pratt, the audio director at Supermassive on the Devil and Me, um, Barney and I had this idea to do sort of a noir shading to the music. So the, the, the strings and the, the brass are very kind of up close, like a, like a studio orchestra would be, meaning um, like the smaller, the smaller rooms with, you know, 20 or 30 players in it, not the huge Abbey Road sound, more of an intimate kind of up close sound. And I also did like my, my personal reflection of how I remember kind of uh, Bernard Herrmann writing harmonies and things, like lots of 
minor major sevens and um, some 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 tritones in there and things. Um, so when it came time to name the tracks, I deliberately tried to make them as bland as possible. <laughs> the way Herman, like if you pull up, you know, Psycho or I mean any any of his soundtracks, it's like the car, the roadway, the hotel. Like it's it's super just descriptive. Like just just. It, it does its job, but that's it. There's no... I, I wonder if he even named them. Probably a music editor did. But that's why we have things like the hotel, the island, the chase, the trap. I just really enjoyed the idea of that being um, a, a, a wink that hopefully people will get to um, to Herman. And um, I got to do something... I got to. I thought about it, and Supermassive would have let me done this before. But usually with these scores... Um, the music on the soundtrack is like less than half of the music that was produced in the game. The last two or three scores, I've been writing these like four, five, six, sometimes seven or eight minute long pieces to give to Supermassive. And those are the pieces that end up being on the soundtrack. So the nine tracks on The Devil in Me, uh, aside from the very last one, um, the first eight tracks are all tracks that literally that's the way I deliver them to Supermassive and then they cut them up and and put them into the game. But the last track, The Hotel, was an example of kind of how we implement the music. So this kind of music, music music, that's on the soundtrack, that's half the score. The other half of the score is all these crazy textures and sound effects and things that are that are more like those long gestures I was talking about with Dead Space. So I played those in the case of this game. Um, a lot of that was just me on strings. But I'm not going to put like an, a five-minute track of just a string riser <laughs> on the soundtrack with all these, you know, it's a lot of utilitarian kinds of things that are perfect for gameplay, but you don't necessarily want to listen to it. Um, but I had the idea of doing that track nine, the hotel, starting out with some soundtrack proper music, but then bringing in some of my more textural sounds just as a um kind of a fun a fun like gotcha moment so you can hear the orchestra or my strings kind of coming in on top of the rest of the music and kind of the way that it would be um implemented in the game and i hadn't i hadn't done that before because usually we call those toolkits there'd be like seven or eight different toolkits i just i just hide those when it comes time to produce the soundtrack because it would just be a lot of work to make something slightly interesting out of those toolkits. So this way I, I slapped one of the, the ends of one of the toolkits over, I think it was like piano music or something. Um, that was fun. Yeah, that's so cool. Well, it's it's always just so much fun to peek under the hood and spend a whole lot of time, you know, digging in and, and talking about this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> and I know we'll be talking again soon. And so Jason, thank you so much for your time. It's just been so much fun. Well, Kate, I really appreciate all the the great questions and the enthusiasm and um, most importantly all the fun that we have talking about this stuff even if the music is is horrible and scary um, I think I, we have a really good time talking about it yeah for sure 